Let's turn again in our Bibles to Matthew in chapter 18 as we continue rather our series in the Gospel according to Matthew, a series that we have entitled The King and His Kingdom. And it's important to remind ourselves of that theme from time to time so that we set before our minds and our hearts the the reality that Jesus is in fact a king. Uh, We so often grow accustomed to speaking of Jesus the Savior and he certainly is, um, that we sometimes obscure the fact that Jesus is Lord and King, and He certainly is. And uh, here in the Gospel according to Matthew, even in light of all of the salvation passages, uh, Matthew presents Jesus as the King. And so as we turn to Matthew 18 and read together the first 20 verses, uh, we read the words of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother." But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, If two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we need great grace this morning. We tread on territory that is difficult, that is very often emotional, 
and yet material that is given by your Son. And so we pray that you will help us, first and foremost, to submit ourselves not to our own preferences or the way things ought to be in our own minds, but to the words of Jesus. Help us to have wisdom in practicing what Jesus here preaches. Make us a healthy people. By way of the gospel, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It is a truism, I believe, in our culture that there are two things that you just don't talk about in polite conversation. And I think you know what they are. Politics and religion. We're far quicker to point that out than we are to practice that adage, I might say, but it's a truism, at least culturally. In the same way, I don't think that there are very many other topics that will cause the record to skip at your church gathering more than bringing up church discipline. But I intend this morning to allow the record to skip because I can't help but not. Here in Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20, we have one of many passages in the New Testament which speak to what is commonly referred to as church discipline. But what I think is more accurately described as church restoration. There are other passages such as 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Titus chapter 3, Galatians chapter 6, James chapter 5, just a few that come to mind immediately that address this issue. But this tends to be ground zero for the discussion of discipline and restoration within the context of the local church. And so in order to understand this passage correctly, and we, we want to do that, we need to take a moment and set it in the context of the gospel according to Matthew, the mission that Jesus has given his church, and the idea of church membership as well. Jesus has given to his people a commission, has he not? He has told us exactly what we are to do. It's really silly business to me when churches try to define what, quote, their mission is. The church doesn't get to define its mission. Jesus defines its mission. In Matthew chapter 28, the end of this great gospel account, in verse 19, Matthew, or Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. That is the mission. How are we to do that? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. There is an assumption that we have proclaimed the good news of Jesus, that a man or a woman has responded to that good news in faith and repentance, and so are baptized. We continue in verse 20 by teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Jesus is Savior and Lord. The King gives commands. He intends for His believing people to be taught not only what those commands are, but taught to observe them. Now, none of us do that perfectly, but that is no excuse 
to shirk the responsibility of teaching that they must be obeyed. And here at the end, we have this promise of Jesus, I am with you always to the end of the age. So insofar as you and I, as gospel people, have an interest in seeing the great commission fulfilled, we dare not leave out the teaching of Jesus on church discipline. The moment we seek to edit the teaching of Jesus on this issue, we have forfeited fulfilling the great commission. Teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. Now, as a background to what we will say here this morning, let me just again reiterate the importance and the significance of church membership. Membership at First Baptist Church or any other local church for that matter is not the same as membership at a local country club. You do not become a member in order simply to acquire benefits. We become members of local churches because we have come to share in Christ and we have a mutual desire to help one another walk in obedience and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. When a man or a woman is welcomed into membership here at this local church, we are saying as a group of elders and then subsequently as a congregation that we believe said man or woman to actually follow Jesus, that they have a credible profession of faith. The church is underwriting, affirming the faith of the individual in question. However, there are sadly times, outlined at the very end of this church discipline process, where for a number of different reasons, the church can no longer in good conscience underwrite a man or a woman's profession of faith. And so they must be removed from membership. It is not ideal. It is not the desired outcome. But it is very often necessary. Church restoration or discipline has as its goal the welcoming home of a sinning Christian as well as exposing the spurious profession of someone who is a Christian in name only. That is what we're after this morning. Now both of those outcomes, understand, both of those outcomes are bathed in grace. Some of us, immediately upon hearing what we're talking about this morning, have begun to think the same old thoughts some of trite thoughts that get brought up over and over again, this is judgmental, this is condemning, there's a lack of mercy here. There is, friends, nothing more merciful than welcoming a wayward Christian home or showing someone who's self-deceived on their way to destruction that they're not actually in so that they might enter. This whole thing is bathed in mercy. I want to point out to you in our text, and you'll, you'll see that we're going to spend quite a bit of time just looking at the Bible, making observations and applications from the Bible. 
I want you to see in our passage this morning something that Pastor Jeremy helped me see. I want to quote him. This passage is surrounded by compassion. In 10 to 14, we have the compassion of the Father, the great shepherd, who upon losing one of his 100 sheep, leaves 99 in order to go and find the 1%. Does that math add up to you? He leaves the 99 to go and find the one straying sheep. That is compassion. Peter, for his part, after hearing all that Jesus says in the first part of this chapter, approaches Jesus in verse 21 and says, how often will my brother sin against me? Note that that's the exact scenario that is brought up in verse 15, if your brother sins against you. How often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? And Jesus responds with the the priority of plentiful forgiveness over and over and over again. What we're after here is emulating the compassion of the Father as He has sent His Son to live in our place, to die for our sins, and to rise again so that you and I might be welcomed home. Now, Jesus' teaching in verses 15 to 20 is, I think, perhaps best broken into two halves. In verses 15 to 17, we have the description of one or more steps toward a brother. One or more steps toward a brother. And the movement certainly is towards and not away from a brother. Look at verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. One or more steps toward a brother. Here is step one in Matthew 18. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Confront him. Point his sin out to him. Expose the law of God broken. Now again, I say there are other passages in the New Testament. This is not the... the, the, end-all, be-all of church discipline. Paul, Titus chapter 3, tells us, in the case of a divisive person, warn him once, then twice. Then have nothing to do with him. Once, then twice. So there are two steps. 1 Corinthians 5, in the context of a member of the church having open sexual relationship with his stepmother, Paul says, let him be removed. I've already pronounced the judgment. Let them be removed. Sounds like there are zero steps. Here, Jesus says, in the event that your brother sins against you, some manuscripts don't include against you, if your brother sins, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. The principle is this. The circle of information and accountability ought only to be as wide as the publicity of the sin. Can we get that off, please? The circle of information and accountability ought only to be as wide as the publicity of the sin. Here is a brother who has sinned. Jesus says, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, that must mean if he 
turns in repentance and seeks forgiveness, you have gained your brother. Now that word gained is used elsewhere in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 9, 1 Peter 3, to describe the winning of an unbelieving soul to Christ. There's the same sort of motivation, saving someone, gaining someone, winning someone from danger. I can't tell you how often this happens week to week here at this local church. It happens more times than any of us will even realize, where one of you will go to another and say, you know, you've, you sort of offended me when you said that, or when you did that, or I think you're a little bit out of bounds here. At least I hope that it happens. I can tell you it happens on our team, our staff, and it's a glorious thing. But Jesus understands as the God-man, perfect God and, and, and fully man, fully God, fully man, he understands human nature to the extent that he understands that when confronted with sin, people often do one of two things, repent or retreat. And in the case of retreat, Jesus continues verse 16, if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Christy Stewart has pointed to uh, my wife and I to watch this, this program that we've been watching all week. It was way too addicting for our own good about this man whose wife goes missing. Now, you've seen shows like this. What happens when someone goes missing? Does the individual just seek after that person by themselves? No. They leverage all of their other relationships, neighbors, family, friends, to help them find their lost loved one. The, the, the preciousness of the one who is lost demands that others participate in the search and rescue. And so Jesus here says, if he will not listen to you, take one or two others along with you. Not because there's an axe to grind, not because you're on a revenge tour, but because you love them. And the wisdom of Jesus here is penetrating. He quotes to us from Leviticus chapter 19, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. Here Jesus protects everyone involved. He protects the accused from trumped up false charges and personal vendettas by the presence of one or more witnesses. He protects the accuser of counter charges and retaliation because of the presence of one or more witnesses. And he protects the church should it come to that point from misinformation and false allegations and personal vendettas by the presence of one or more witnesses. Here Jesus says, if he will not listen, you ought to be sure that every charge is established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Well, what do we do yet and still if, in fact, the wayward believer won't listen to the plea of one or of many? Well, listen to what Jesus says, verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Tell it to the church. Now, you and I, as 
a mem- uh, as members of this local body, we have covenanted together, have got to figure out what that means. In our context, we have said that the step of telling it to the church takes place in a special business meeting. Yes, did you know that our Constitution outlines what we're to do when church discipline is practiced? Because very often, church discipline lies as a relic in an old antique shop of the church's Constitution. It's there is not practiced. And it's in ours. Tell it to the church, the members of the body. And call upon the members of the body then to plea and to pray for this wayward Christian. But if they will not listen, even to the church, think of the obstinance here. Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Jesus himself explains to us what this means just in the context of the the book. Chapter 5, verse 46, If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Speaking to his disciples. Do not even the tax collectors do the same? There's a difference. There's a line drawn in the sand. Disciples of Jesus and tax collectors. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. There's a line drawn in the sand. Disciples, Gentiles. It's not that tax collectors like Matthew and Gentiles like the Roman centurion can't get in. It just means from the perspective of a first century Jew, they're not. And so here Jesus takes an individual through the entire process from the brother who sins against you to the Gentile or tax collector who can no longer be regarded as someone who actually represents Jesus. The goal from the get-go has been to gain the brother, verse 15. And in most cases, that is what happens. But sad to say, there are moments when someone who was once considered a brother or a sister is now considered a Gentile or a tax collector. Removed from membership. Now let's set this just for a moment, just so we understand. Let, let's set this in the, the framework of the gospel. And let's just ask ourselves simply, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? What does the gospel accomplish in the life of a man or a woman? There are many imitation false gospels out there. And one of the most prevalent, the one that jumps on a passage like this and says that is unloving and judgmental, that false gospel is as follows. God is love. And He forgives. Believe in Jesus and live how you'd like. That is not the New Testament's gospel. The actual gospel has as its background, both in Hebrews and Matthew and a variety of other places in the New Testament, has as its background the new covenant promises of the Lord in the book of Jeremiah. 
where Jeremiah speaks of a day when this great covenant will be enacted, where he will forgive the sins of his people as well as fill them with his Holy Spirit and write his law on their hearts. The gospel is not simply believe in Jesus and live how you'd like. The gospel is God loves you. Though you are undeserving and condemned by your sin, God loves you. He sent his son to live in your place in obedience to the law of God. All those things that we recited together at the beginning of our service, Jesus fulfilled all of those and more besides without flaw. That he died for our sins in all the ways that you and I have gone astray and broken the law of God that requires his judgment. Jesus took that upon himself and rose from the dead, God accepting his payment so that, so that, if I trust in that, if I actually trust in that gospel, God's law is now written on my heart. I can't help but be changed. The gospel actually does something to me. It makes me more like Jesus. Not perfectly, progressively over the course of our lives, we often live in this this never-ending struggle of two steps forward, one step back. Unfortunately, sometimes one step forward, two steps back. But in the end, when the accounts are viewed, we are made more like Jesus by grace, having believed in the gospel and fixing our eyes on Christ. And so here, what Jesus says is, filled with loving kindness because it's the mechanism by which God the loving heavenly father the shepherd of the sheep seeks out the one having left the 99 he does so by his church and it is God the wise and loving shepherd who who through his church looks at a, at a man or woman who's made a false profession of faith, who's a Christian in name only, and says, you're not who you thought you were. But you can come home. So that's what gets lost in all of this. Let me ask you this. Who among us, who among us, if your son or your daughter went completely astray, Sexual promiscuity, drug use, alcoholism, up to their eyeballs in debt, foolish living. Which one of you would not approach your child and say, you know, you've really messed up, but you can come home. You can come home. Yet and still, you can come home. And that's the message of the church each and every step of the way. And in the event that someone is exposed as having never come home, the Lord says through this process of church discipline, even still you can come now. This is a gospel grace. And so loved ones, I, I have to tell you that we will practice church discipline and you're reasonable people you look at your bibles in front of you you tell me if if we can avoid it 
can't avoid it. Without claiming to be wiser or more gracious than Jesus Christ himself, you can't avoid it. Those of us who are members of First Baptist Church have covenanted together to help one another walk in faith and obedience to Jesus. And this is part of that process. No one is exempt, not even me. And I would never join in membership in a church that didn't care about my soul enough to come and get me when I'm injured on the battlefield. We have one or more steps toward a brother. I trust that you see here. It is towards, not away from. It is a movement of grace, not of judgment. This is initiated by the great shepherd himself. The second half of the passage we have Two or more gathered in Jesus' name. The key question here in all of this, I think, or one of, is by whose authority? In our society, which prizes personal privacy, the natural question to ask when confronted on our sin, by whose authority do you think you can do that? In a litigious society, It's a normal question to ask. By whose authority could you possibly have done that? I don't think you have to look hard if your Bible uses red letters to describe the words of Jesus or to point out the words of Jesus. It's not hard to answer the question, by whose authority is it? It's by Jesus' authority. Look at what he says. Truly I say to you, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Recently heard the story of a woman who caught a federal case for mishandling her responsibilities as a doctor. She was prescribing pain medication when she shouldn't have been. She ran a pill mill, as they call it. And she was served papers, which read at the top, The people of the United States of America versus her name. And she, in her own words, said, now that is, that's frightening. The whole country's against me. Now, no doubt she went into a courtroom and the case was tried by, or or the, 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 the case was made by a prosecution. But that prosecution, understand, comes with the full authority of the people of the United States of America. That prosecutor represents a greater authority. And here, what Jesus says is in the courtroom of church discipline, the church itself operates with a received authority from Him. Whatever you bind on earth, that is to say, whatever you declare bound, unforgiven in the life of a professing yet false Christian shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth, that is, whatever you have forgiven in the process of restoration and the life of a wayward believer shall be loosed in heaven. Jesus says it very plainly in John chapter 20, verse 23, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. 
That's not to say that the church can't make mistakes. We do make mistakes, but Jesus is saying here, when the church is gathered in the name of the Lord Jesus, when we humbly submit ourselves to his word and by his authority do what he says, it's not that we, we make someone a Christian or not, but it is that our declaration reflects the rule of heaven itself. When we proclaim bound or loosed, we're simply reflecting the verdict that has already been pronounced in heaven. Again, I say to you, verse 19, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Context, context, context. This is one of those places where you want to tell people, I'm really sorry your favorite verse doesn't mean what you thought it meant. Because it does not mean that if you and I gather together and pray for Alexis, that God's going to give us Alexis. There are churches that will teach that. We're not going to be one of them. It does not mean that if me, Tommy, and Billy meet on Sunday morning at Castle Hills Golf Course instead of here, that's all gravy because wherever two or three are gathered, there Jesus is with us. That's not what Jesus is saying. Some of you wish that's what he was saying. Sometimes I wish that was what he was saying, but that's not what he's saying. What he is saying is that as the church gathers in his name and under his authority, two or three gather together in obedience to the process of church discipline and restoration. When we follow these commands, we can be certain that he is here among us. The same Lord who commands us to judge not lest we be judged, is the omnipresent one who is in our midst when we practice church discipline and restoration. Isn't that wonderful? Everything that we do together as a body is done with a concern for discipline. Everything. You may not realize it, but it is. I talk about them a lot. I miss them like crazy. I'm talking about my dad. My dad was a teacher. My dad was a leader of men. And I can't tell you, I can't think of a time, whether we're riding in his old Ford Ranger whether he's sitting by my, my bed watching me play my Sega Genesis or standing on a football field or over family dinner, I can't think of a time when my dad wasn't teaching me how to live. He was disciplining me in order to be a fully formed adult male. It was positive. It was formative. It was joyful. I still remember his sayings and his stories. They, they, they'll be with me forever. But there were those times, right, when no matter how many times he had taught me a lesson and told me how I ought to live or told me that anecdote or gave me that quote when I just didn't listen. And my dad loved me enough to say, hey, Mike, you're not going out this weekend. In your room, what do you, who do you think you are? Come on. 
You go out Saturday, maybe, if you're lucky, right? Because he loved me enough to point out when I've gone astray so that I might learn and walk in obedience to him. And you know, that's the exact kind of imagery that that the New Testament picks up in Hebrews when, when the writer of the Hebrews says, God disciplines those he loves. No discipline, no sonship. If God doesn't discipline you, you're not even his kid. So each and every week as we gather together as a church, we do so under the authority of our loving Heavenly Father who disciplines us because He loves us. He disciplines us through the positive proclamation of His Word. And when we step out of line, He disciplines us by His obedient people going and seeking out. I, for one, only ever want to be a part of a church family that reflects the heart of my Father in this way. And so, we take that relic, we blow the dust off of it, we take it out of the antique room of our church constitution, and we bring it to the foreground of life together when the rubber meets the road and your brother sins against you. Why? Because that's how our Father has designed the church. It's what our Father wants for the church. It's commanded by our loving brother Jesus who died for our sins and rose again. And because it is absolutely integral to the mission of the church. Because we cannot teach people to obey all that he has commanded if we refuse to obey ourselves. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your wisdom and your grace. Lord, forgive us for the moments when we have tried to define grace other than how you define it. Forgive us for those times when we have felt ourselves to be wiser, more gracious, more merciful than you. Lord, we we confess that uh, by nature we, we shirk, uh, we, we react against the clear commandment of Jesus here, and we want to repent of that. Lord, we pray that you would help us in wisdom and grace to implement and to apply all that you've taught us. And we pray that you would make us a repentant and humble and soft-hearted people so that when confronted with real and actual sin, we would be gained by our brother. Lord, we thank you and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.